Jesus, the truth of that song that we have just sung is overwhelming. Lord, it goes so perfectly with today's passage. To think that we were running a hellbound race, indifferent to the cost. But then because of your intervention, because you cared for us, we might be able to look at the cross and see your love displayed for us as your arms are stretched out and your body is broken and your blood is being poured out. More importantly, as you're drinking in the full wrath and punishment for sin, my sin, your love is clearly displayed. And I'm humbled by it and grateful for it and overwhelmed by it. My heart melts, God, at the realization of your beauty and your glory and your power. You are the creator of all things, and yet you bow to save the helpless ones. My heart melts in consideration of that fact that you in all your glory would live and breathe and die and be buried on our behalf. We're so thankful for it, Jesus. Lord, there are some here this morning who have never seriously thought about what has happened on the cross. There are some here who have professed faith simply because they were told to. Some here who have professed faith simply because it made them feel better about their eternal destination. There are some here who are simply regurgitating what they've been told to believe and they have never seriously thought about God in the flesh on the cross for our sins. What that means legally. And I pray today you would open their eyes. Open our eyes. Stir our hearts' affections for you, Jesus. Humble us under the weight of the gospel and build us up with you as the cornerstone. Let us contemplate the significance, the eternal significance of justification, of substitutionary atonement of sanctification and glorification. Let us comprehend this morning by Your Spirit's help what it truly means to be alive in You. Let false professions of faith this morning be exposed and false converts repent. And let Your children be moved to humble, sincere worship. For your glory, Jesus, I, I ask these things.
Amen. I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to the New Testament letter called Romans. The book of Romans. I've been asked when we're going to get back into the Gospel of Luke. We will be back coming January 13th. Coming soon. Mark your calendars. But for now, we'll be in Romans chapter 8. Perhaps the most encouraging, wonderful chapter in all of the Bible. Romans chapter 8. It's rich. It's wonderful. It's powerful. It's transformative. And we're going to spend some time there in light of where we've been the last four weeks. We've been looking at the birth of Christ, um, specifically and how the angel announced it to the shepherd in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, that the birth of Christ is good news of great joy for all people. And that news is that a Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born. We talked about those four elements over the last four weeks why the angel would announce the birth of Christ in such a way, um, highlighting Jesus came to be the Savior for sinners. And today we're going to look at what it means to really be converted. What does it mean to have life in Christ? What does the Bible say um, about being alive in the Lord Jesus? If He's born to save and He does save, what does that look like? And that's what we're going to study out of Romans chapter 8, beginning really in verse 1. Now, I'll confess, we're not going to cover all of this this morning. And so uh, we'll cover the first part this morning and the last two parts, hopefully tonight. So when we stop in the middle, just be aware that's that's the plan. We're going to cover this over two services. But let's begin in verse one, looking at really the the foundation of of this passage, this whole chapter. Uh, Romans 8, verse 1, we'll read through verse 11. Paul writes and says this. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son, In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That's a weighty passage of Scripture, right? How are we going to walk through any of this and make any headway? Because there's a lot being said there and a lot of discussion can be had about this passage. But we're going to break it down and look at it in its more simple form. There are really three things we can identify out of these first 11 verses concerning life in Christ. Um, We can look at the foundation of of what it means to be alive in Christ. We'll look at the character of what it means to be alive in Christ and and what the future is for those who are alive in Christ. And first, we'll cover from verse 1 through the first half of verse 4. What's the foundation for being alive in Christ? And really, the question we're wanting to answer this morning is, what do you do about sin? That's the first thing we have to address as we consider salvation, as we consider being born again. What is is done with sin? Now, let's not minimize sin. Sin is a serious issue of eternal significance. Sin is the very issue that separates us from an eternal God. Sin is the reason we don't all automatically enter into heaven. Sin is disobedience to a holy, just, powerful, wrathful, glorious God. It's a big deal. So the question, what do we do about sin, is the biggest question we can ask ourselves. And it's therefore the foundation for being alive in Christ. The answer to what we do about sin is justification. A wonderful word that we need to hide in our hearts and and in our minds and understand. Justification is everything that our lives as Christians is built upon. If we don't have justification, we don't have anything. Everything about our faith, everything about our life in Christ, everything about our future in heaven, everything about our sanctification is all built upon the foundation of justification. Justification is being made legally right before God. Legally right before God. It's a term that represents a legal transaction in dismissing your guilt because your guilt has been paid for and then erased in Christ. Justification is an act of Divine eternal justice. Where God in His perfect justice cannot ignore disobedience, lawlessness, transgression, sin. Therefore it has to be dealt with. So a legal transaction must take place. Justification is that legal transaction. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. He says... Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful way to to put justification. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. Because without justification, we're still in our sin. And if we're still in our sin, we're separated from God who is the holy judge. And that separation creates hostility. That separation means opposition. That separation is the opposite of union. So without justification, we're not drawing near to God. We're staying opposed to God in judgment. And and as verse 1 alludes to, condemnation. But justification means, just as verse 1 says, 
that condemnation is removed. It means now we have peace with God. It means our guilt, which is real, which which is an apt description of us, is actually being dealt with. Not just swept under the rug, but actually addressed and dealt with and erased. You are guilty. Whether you acknowledge that or not. Whether you want to own up to that or not. We are all guilty before God. Justification is what we need. So justification is the foundation of life in Christ. And as we walk through verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, we'll highlight several things about justification that they don't necessarily define justification, but they show the fruit and benefit of justification in Christ as Paul's explaining them. The first one is just what I've already mentioned in verse 1. Justification means or has as its fruit and benefit no condemnation. You're no longer condemned for your guilt. That's glorious news. Matthew Henry writes about this verse and this particular word or phrase, no condemnation. He writes and says this. Paul does not say, quote, there is no accusation against them. For this there is. But the accusation is thrown out and the indictment is quashed. He does not say there is nothing in them that deserves condemnation. For there is. Those who are Christians see it and own it and mourn over it and condemn themselves for it. But that shall not be their ruin. He does not say there is no cross to bear, nor affliction to them, nor displeasure in the affliction. For this there may be, but he says there is no condemnation. Uh, I read that quote to you to say Henry is getting at the precise a definition of that word condemnation and don't misunderstand what he's saying there condemnation in verse one is not meaning an easy life and condemnation doesn't mean you're free from accusation from the enemy there's so many times we're accused of our guilt before the enemy and and we equate that with the fact that we may not be saved those things lead into doubt that's not what paul's saying here as a christian you're going to face accusation and no condemnation doesn't mean that you're not going to face affliction and hardship and, and trials and still struggle with your sin. We're still going to struggle with our sin. No condemnation means we're no longer held guilty because of that sin. We're not punished for that sin. We're not entering into judgment for that sin. Yes, accusation will still be real. Yes, hardships will still, still exist. But in Christ, you're seen as innocent. That's justification. That's this legal transaction that takes place. That's what we've already referenced this, this month. Martin Luther called the great exchange. Where Christ is condemned in your place so you won't be condemned. So condemnation doesn't mean that your guilt isn't real. It means that you're not punished for that guilt. That instead your guilt has been paid for. All the things that make us guilty. Idolatry. Blasphemy. Adultery. Stealing. Murder. Lying. Covetousness. Idol worship. All of those things. 
Christ takes upon Himself and is condemned for them Himself and punished for them Himself. So that verse 8 of Romans, or verse 1 of Romans 8 might be true for you and I. There's no condemnation for us. There's no punishment for your guilt because Christ was punished in your stead. That is the foundation of every Christian life. That's where our eternity begins. That's where we stand. And that's where we will continue. In verse 1 of chapter 8, Paul gives this great um, qualifier that this, this statement is not true for everybody. Unfortunately. This glorious, wonderful phrase, no condemnation, that your guilt has been erased and paid for and dealt with in Jesus. It's not true for everybody. It's only true for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the, the qualifying statement. It's a favorite phrase of Paul. If you really want to do a, a study of that phrase in Christ Jesus, read the book of Ephesians and start underlining and highlighting and circling all the times that he uses it. It really is his all-encompassing phrase of complete and total union with Jesus and salvation. That's what he's getting at when he uses that, that phrase. Essentially what he's saying is, those who no longer trust in themselves but have been consumed by Jesus, it is those and those alone who no longer have condemnation. Now, I don't think this, this phrase really begins to weigh on us because we don't often consider the significance of our guilt, do we? And a, a preacher can't say it enough. He can't plead with a human heart enough to understand the weight of your guilt before a holy God. The weight of transgressing one dot of the holy law of God is enormous, church. There are times I've prayed and times I wish that a church would realize its guilt to such a place of brokenness that it would weigh on them and burden on them. And that's not advantageous to church growth, right? We don't send that out on Facebook every week. Like We want you to feel your, your guilt when you come here. But that's still true. We want you to feel your guilt. I want you to feel the burden and the weight of disobeying holy God. The one who breathes things into existence. Who made you and I out of dust. We're creatures of dust. And, and to understand the significance that everything else in all of creation obeys the will of God except for these creatures of dust. And they look at God and they say, no, we're going to do our own thing. And, and that's, the, that's the cycle pattern in the book of Judges that describes really the fallen condition of all humanity. Every man did what was right in his own sight. They don't, they don't care about God's view. They don't care about God's instruction. They don't care about God's law. Read the book of First and Second Kings if you can bear it. And over and over again you find these kings who do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And even the good kings, they don't abolish the idol worship. All of that to say, we are prone in our hearts, it's our natural inclination to look at the goodness of God and reject it. And to rebel against it. And do things in our own selfish, perverted, sinful way. And that makes us guilty. And that guilt deserves 
eternal punishment. If you think hell is unfair, you do not understand the seriousness of sin. And you have not yet comprehended the weight of your guilt. There are people in the world who want to dismiss the eternal aspect of hell. That hell is only for a temporary time period. Those people have no idea what it means to sin against a holy God. Those people have no idea what it means to stand before one that John describes in Revelation as having eyes of fire and a tongue like a sword. And in Revelation 19, when he comes back, he's not coming back like he did the first time in mercy and grace. He's coming back and he's going to get covered in blood, Revelation 19 says. And why is he going to get covered in blood? Because he's slaughtering his enemies. They have no idea what it means to stand before that judge and say, I have broken your law. They have no idea what it means to be held accountable to such a one who will breathe fire in the end. We love to think about Jesus as loving and, and the, the baby in the manger and kind and sacrificial and compassionate and caring. And, and we should. He is those things. Don't get me wrong. He's also the one who's the creator of hell. Eternal torment in flame as a punishment for sin. He's also the one that, that pours out wrath on sin to the point that Jesus sits in the garden and says, Father, if it be possible, deliver me from this. You think he's sweating drops of blood because he's afraid of the Roman soldiers? By no means. They can't do anything to him. He's already said in John 10, I lay down my life of my own accord. So what makes Jesus weep in the garden? It's the impending wrath of God for sin. That's the God we're talking about. That's the God we're accountable to. That's the God we're guilty before. Your sin is not a light thing. Your guilt is not a trivial thing. It's not an easy thing. It's a burden. And let it break your heart. Let it wear down on you to the point where you say, I have nothing to cling to. I have nothing to offer. I am nothing more than the tax collector in Luke 18 pleading for nothing more than the mercy of God. I have no credit to my name, no merit to bring before this judge. I am guilty. I am doomed. I am condemned. Because it's in that place of realizing your guilt that you begin to see the glorious wonder of Romans 8.1 that there is now therefore no condemnation. The weight of my guilt, the seriousness of my transgression, the honesty of my accountability, the, the brokenness of my sin before a holy and just God makes me cling with all my might to no condemnation in Christ Jesus. It makes me stand before the Savior in awe and humility and sincerity of heart, pleading with Him day after day after day, have mercy on me. Showing a lifestyle of gratitude. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Because you endured what was rightfully mine. You were condemned so that I would have no condemnation. Oh, you are guilty. But Paul says if you're in Christ Jesus, since He took your guilt on Himself, you're innocent. This qualifier, 
those who are in Christ Jesus, it needs to be seriously considered as well because the good old boy down the street is still under condemnation. The most disciplined monk in, in some eastern part of the world who doesn't know Christ but lives a morally decent life is still under condemnation. The child or grandchild or spouse that's grown up with a Christian wife or husband or grown up in a Christian home or gone to church all their life, but, but they don't believe in Jesus, saving belief, faith in Christ, they're still under condemnation. Paul is very clear. Only those who are in Christ Jesus are liberated from condemnation. Only those who have surrendered themselves to the Lord. Only those who are united to Jesus, who have union with Christ, has their guilt been dealt with. Jesus praised that in John 17. He praised this very point. Father, I pray that they would be one with us. Talking about believers. That they'd be united to us. And us to them. Because that union liberates us from condemnation. We could spend the next year on verse 1. We could plead with one another. Perhaps I should just leave it there for the Spirit to work. Let's move on to verse 2. The second aspect of justification is not only that you're not condemned anymore, but verse 2, you have freedom in the spirit of life. Now you'll notice as you walk through this passage, each verse is built upon the next verse. It's kind of this reverse reasoning that Paul is employing here. Um, Verse 1 is true because verse 2 is true. You have no condemnation in Christ Jesus because... You've been set free in the spirit of life. So every time if you're reading the ESV version of the Bible, which you should be, every time you're looking at it, you'll find this word F-O-R, for, and, and we can begin to replace that word with the word because. So you could read it like this. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. From the law of sin and death. That's what, that's what Paul's getting at. That's the, that's the building blocks that he's using and, and putting in place. And so the second point of justification is this freedom that comes in the spirit of life. That freedom is in contrast to verse 2, the, the law of sin and death. Now we can spend a lot of time discussing what does it mean when Paul uses this phrase, law of spirit of life. What laws are you referencing? And, and those are worthy discussions. And, and um, there are two really main points of view. One of them is the, the gospel. It's, it's a representation of the gospel or the Christian faith. And that's what Paul's alluding to in that phrase. The, the other explanation is the operative power of the Spirit. Not a written law like the gospel or, or, or a form of, of a message, but more um, the, this powerful... Uh, form of law, like in gravity, uh, for instance, the operative power of, of a law, of a principle. I think it's both of those. I think that's what Paul's talking about. I think we can encompass this phrase, law of the spirit of life, to just simply be um, the rule of the spirit, the Holy Spirit over you. 
So now we're creatures who are ruled over the Holy, ruled over by the Holy Spirit and no longer ruled over by sin and death. It's this other exchange that's happened. This other contrast that's happened. Now we are free in Christ Jesus. Now we're under the covenant of grace and not the covenant of, of law. Now we're in the spirit of life and no longer in sin and no longer in death. That's a, that's a huge transition. Now why is Paul using the phrase sin and death? I don't think he's merely being redundant. I think those things can be taken together. Because they can unite together to summarize the overarching theme and power of sin and death. But I also think he mentions them to be distinct. Sin is that very thing that makes us guilty, isn't it? It's the very reason we're condemned in verse 1. Death is the fruit or consequence of that guilt. Which tells me in my understanding, that the Spirit of life has freed us from both condemning sin and the consequence of such condemnation. We're freed from what makes us guilty and the consequence of such guilt. There's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus because now the Spirit has set us free from that which condemned us and that which punished us death. Freedom is ours to be had. At this point, we highlight why can one be free of condemnation and why can one be free of sin and why can one be free of death? It goes back to this qualifier because Paul uses it again in verse 2 just as he did in verse 1. You're united to Jesus Christ. The one who was condemned in your place. The one who conquered sin in your place. The one who lives on your behalf. And unity with Him means our guilt is removed and the sin has been dealt with and death is set at bay and we now have life in Him. We're united to the one who's overcome sin and overcome death and can't be overcome by death any longer. Your union to Christ is everything. Your justification boils down to your union to Jesus. Your condemnation is removed because you're united to Christ. Your sin and death is removed because you're united to Christ. So first, there's no condemnation. Two, we're free in the Spirit. And three, what does justification look like? This righteous requirement of the law has been met in us. Verse 3, we find what our justification is built on. Our faith or our lives as Christians is built on the foundation of justification. But what's the foundation of justification itself? It's verse 3 and verse 4, this truth that God Himself has intervened. That's the first phrase in verse 3 and it summarizes everything else we read. God has done God has stepped in and acted. God has moved on our behalf. God has initiated. God has worked. We found it in John 3.16. God loved the world. He sent His Son. 
We find it in Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God was rich in mercy, and that's why we're saved. God is the great worker of salvation. He is the initiator of salvation. That's the truth all over Scripture. Even back into chapter 5 of Romans, verse 6, 7, and 8. God is the one who died for the ungodly. God is the one who died for us while we were still sinners. God is the worker of your redemption. Verse 3, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God intervened and God acted because of these two things that Paul mentions. The law is weak and it couldn't do something. First, it's weak not in its authority, not in its power, not in its clarity, not in its um, all-encompassing nature, not in its influence. It's not weak in and of itself. It's weak, according to Paul, by the flesh. Because of us. The law is weak because you and I couldn't keep it. And therefore, because it's weak and because we couldn't keep it, it can't accomplish something. And what can't it accomplish? It can't deal with your sin. It can't remove your sin. It can't remove your guilt. It can't atone for your your sin. In fact, Paul tells us in other places of the New Testament, it only enhances and increases your guilt. The, the author of Hebrews has a commentary on this very, very truth. Hebrews chapter 10. Talking about what the law cannot do because of its weakness. Hebrews 10 verse 1. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And keep going and reading through through verse 10. It's this commentary on why the law is weak and what the law cannot do. It can't make you right before God. So give up. Quit trying to keep the law. Quit trying to be good enough before God. You will be sorely mistaken on the day of judgment. The greatest Pharisee in the world who has ever lived, who has kept the law in the best possible way it's ever been kept, according to all humanity, apart from Christ, is still under condemnation. Galatians 3.1, Paul says, no man will be justified by works of the law. The law cannot address your sin. The law only increases your guilt. So Paul would write, God stepped in and intervened where the law was weak and where the law couldn't accomplish something. And, and it couldn't accomplish dealing with your sin. So God intervenes in verse 3 by sending His own Son. You're free from condemnation under the law because God sent Christ. Paul mentions two things here as well. He sends Him in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
And then he sends him for sin. The likeness of sinful flesh does not by any means refer to Jesus being sinful himself. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 and verse 23, he himself committed no sin. There wasn't any transgression even found in his mouth. And when he's reviled, he didn't revile in return, verse 23, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There's no sin in Jesus Christ. Likeness of sinful flesh means that he came and was born and lived and died just as us without sin. Took on flesh and bone. He felt the nerves in his forearms firing perfectly when the nails are thrusted through his wrist. He knew what it was like to need to eat food and to need to go to bed. Clip his toenails and wash his hair. And he didn't he didn't endure such an existence just to identify with us, though that's a wonderful truth. Hebrews says we have a great high priest who's sympathetic with us and knows our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way as us just without sin. And so, yes, Christ takes on flesh and identifies with us, but that's not merely or solely the point of being born in the likeness of sinful flesh. He takes on flesh to be the adequate sacrifice for us. I don't remember if it was last week or the week before, but we've, we've covered this. It was man who transgressed God. Mankind, humanity. And therefore, humanity had to atone for their sin. But humanity can atone for their sin. Because no sacrifice is without blemish. No human can be perfect. So God became human to die on behalf of humanity. Remember the phrase substitutionary atonement. Christ was born in the likeness of sinful flesh, not just to experience the joys and pains of human life here on this broken world, but to be the adequate sacrifice in your place. It's no longer a bull or a lamb or a goat or whatever else. It's a man. And it's a perfect man. It's Jesus Christ, the God-man. Second, Paul says, God sent His Son, not just in the likeness of sinful flesh, but for sin. That's the purpose for Him coming. To deal with sin. To deal with what the law couldn't deal with because it was weakened by us who couldn't keep it. Jesus didn't come to make you a better you. He didn't come to make you a better moral individual. He didn't come to harmonize the world and bring peace to, to the world in the sense of some beauty contestant statement. He's not this Buddha-like character. He came to deal with sin, invade your heart, transform your desires, change your pleasures, conquer yourself. That's not a, a, a fluffy Easter bunny kind of Jesus. Jesus came to get to the very depths of who you are. And if He hasn't, you don't know Jesus of the Bible. He came to deal with the most corrupt, disgusting, blackest place of your existence. Your sin. 
Church is not about just being a better individual, being a better citizen in America, having better morals than the next guy down the street. All of those may be byproducts and, and, and fruit of salvation in Christ, but the real, real meaning of being a Christian is having your sin dealt with by Jesus. Which is very involved and very uncomfortable and very invading. Very vulnerable. If you have not laid yourself bare before Christ. If you haven't experienced what the author of Hebrews says. Laying yourself bare exposed before the eyes of of Him to whom we have to give an account. Him who sees us all as, as naked before Himself. If you haven't laid the depths of your broken, disgusting soul bare before Christ, you haven't come to Him in faith. Jesus came to deal with your sin. And that that's not popular. But that's what Paul says. God intervened. God intervened because we weakened the law according to our flesh so it couldn't remove our guilt. It couldn't remove our sin. So He sent His Son to be like us and to deal with the very issue that separates us from God. Our guilt. Our sin. And how did He deal with it? Verse 3. He condemned sin in the flesh. And that condemnation of sin changes us. It liberates us. It makes verse 2 true. It makes verse 1, therefore, true. Because Christ condemned sin in the flesh, you can have freedom in the spirit of life and therefore no condemnation. Because Christ condemned sin in the flesh, everything about our lives can be changed. Our desires, our pleasures, our hopes, our dreams... Sin not only affected our vertical relationship with God, it affected our horizontal relationship with one another, but because Christ came and dealt with sin, those things can be restored to godliness. Everything about our lives is transformed by that statement, Jesus came and condemned sin in His flesh. It means in His body, He literally took in the punishment of our guilt and our sin on the cross. So again, where the law couldn't work, Jesus would. And when the law couldn't redeem, Jesus can. When the law couldn't remove guilt, Jesus has. By this point in Paul's discussion, I come to this place of saying, all I have is Christ. He's the only thing I can cling to. Verse 4, real quick. Because that's this is the point. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So, so in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking through this verse and, and I'm understanding first there is a requirement of the law and we couldn't keep it. Back to verse 3. It's weakened by the flesh. It couldn't do something. That's our fault. But there's still this requirement. And this requirement still has to be met. And it's a righteous requirement. And yet, we can't keep the righteous requirement because we're still sinful apart from Christ. And that's why Christ had to come condemn sin in the flesh. Which tells me in verse 4, there's this phrase, in order that 
the righteous requirement of the law might be kept and fulfilled in us. It tells me that the, the death of Christ is explicitly connected to my righteousness. And sometimes I get personally guilty of thinking only about my righteousness in terms of Christ being righteous or Christ living a perfect life on my behalf. But Paul doesn't stop there. Christ lived a perfect life on your behalf, but that's not just the inheritance of your righteousness. His very death is the inheritance of your righteousness. Why is that? Because in that death, He removes the obstacle of sin that righteousness might take over. Christ lived a perfect life on your behalf, but that means nothing if His death isn't applied to your life. Because only when His death is applied to your life is sin and the guilt of sin and the condemnation for sin removed so that righteousness might be imputed. And replace that which was ungodly and unrighteous. That's the gospel. That's justification, church. That's what it means to be justified before God. This legal transaction that takes place on the cross. Jesus removed sin so that righteousness might reign. And that righteousness might meet the requirement of the law. That we might be united to God forever. So we can backbuild from there, right? Christ condemns him in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So that, verse 2, we might have freedom in the spirit of life. And in that freedom, know what it means to no longer have condemnation for our guilt. The foundation for our life in Christ begins right here in this justification. Where your guilt, overwhelming guilt, is dealt with in Jesus. And freedom now belongs to you. And righteousness now belongs to you. Where we can now be pleasing to God. And honor God with our lives. And live for God with our lives. That's where we have to stop this morning. But that's a good enough place to stop this morning. For you to consider, is such justification true for me? You can profess all you want to profess and, and pray all you want to pray, but if that justification isn't what marks your life, then you're not in Christ. If you're in Christ, these truths of justification are true for you. You're free from sin and death. You're free from the guilt of your sin. And the righteous requirement of the law has been met on your behalf. God acts for us. Has that been true for you? Or are you living some kind of mystical spiritual experience? Convincing yourself of salvation. Do you know the fruits of justification? Are they evident in your life? This is what it means to have life in Jesus church. This is the beginning, the beginning point of this, this child that we've been talking about being born. What does it mean to follow after him? It means first, foremost, to be justified. And that's the question we have to ask. Lord, your word is rich beyond all measure and, and it has things to say 
We just can't say them any better. Can't expound upon them anymore. We can't persuade any better than what your word can do. So God, in my complete weakness this morning and oh so distracted heart, my only hope and prayer is that your word through your spirit would be applied. As we said earlier this morning, Lord, we don't need eloquent words. We don't need top quality music. We don't need carefully orchestrated details in our service. Those things aren't bad, but what we need, Jesus, is you and and the justification that you offer and bring and give. I just hope, Lord, we're not going through the motions. I hope these truths are real for us. That we are honest about them. That we know what it means to have our guilt removed. That we know what it means to be free in your spirit now. And we know what it means to taste righteousness and know that the law has been satisfied through You on our behalf. These are the things we need to consider, Lord. These are the things of salvation. These are the things of belonging to You. And oh, We certainly need Your help to understand them and apply them. Forgive us woeful creatures who are inadequate at explaining the significance of Your truth. But praise You that it never comes back void and You never leave it alone. You work it and You work it and You work it. We pray that You would do that among all of us this morning. In Jesus' name.